One of the most rewarding things I get to do is to study the Bible every week as part of my job. I love it. Uh, I love doing it. On Mondays, usually I'm, I'm back in the office. I'm getting resettled for another week. We have a staff meeting, kind of get our handle, get oriented for what's happening that week. By the end of the day, usually I'm starting to open up and study the next portion of Scripture that we're working through. And ordinarily, I don't have to figure out what I'm going to say or what sermon I'm going to preach or what text I'm going to use. I just pick the next one. Uh, we're, we're ordinarily just going through a book of the Bible. We've been in Mark for the last two and a half years and just pick the next one. Uh, I will confess, though, sometimes that we, we come up to a, a passage that just grabs me by the throat and demands my attention. It's not my fault, I, I, I promise. It's the text just reaching out to me and saying, you know, study me, <laughs> look at me, understand me. And so uh, what was happening last week, as I was preparing for, I guess two weeks ago, last week's sermon, I, I met with the elders on the Wednesday night elder meeting, and I was just telling them uh, uh, about my, my time studying the cross and how refreshing it was to my own soul. And I said, guys, I, I'm tempted here. I'm tempted to preach another sermon on the cross. And they said, go for it. I said, okay, I'll, t- I'll preach another sermon on the cross. So I get studying. The ne- that was, a, uh, I think, a Tuesday night, and it's a Wednesday morning. I'm back in the office. I'm studying and prepping. Well, that one sermon turned into four. So we now have a four-part series on the cross, all right? It's going to be a deep dive into the cross of Christ. Personally, I have been swimming in an ocean of grace this last couple weeks as I stare at the cross, and I am just eager for you to experience with me some of the joy, uh, the, the amazing wonder of the cross. It's in one sense has always been at the center of everything we do. In another sense, there's always a danger that the cross becomes something in the periphery that we forget about. I felt like I was kind of beginning to chip away in a mind just trying to look for something and I opened up an entire cavern of glorious gems and jewels and uh, I just said, uh, I got I to gotta pull this up and bring this to my church and there's no way I'm going to do it in one sermon. Um, it's been so great for me personally and refreshing for me, uh, a joy to study and something I wanted to invite you into. It has been my, my deepening conviction as I've done this. I think I've had this conviction, but just the, the, the hammer is just pounding the conviction much deeper into my heart, into my soul, into my very bones that the cross truly is the central event of the universe. It really is the the center, the climax, the ultimate. It is the intended focal point of all that God has done and is doing. It's not an addendum. If history is a film, the cross is not a prop in the background. It's the center It's the only way to know God. It's the only way to know ourselves. It's the only way to come to God. It's the only way to figure out how we ought to live. All of it focuses in all of history and theology and redemption is about the cross. There's no understanding. I'm I'm more and more convinced of this. There is no understanding of the world itself 
outside of the cross. So to, to pause and spend a month just like that centurion last week, just staring at the cross, I think will be really good for us. Because there's always a danger. I think if the devil, if the enemy wants to do something to the church, one thing he will do will obscure the cross. Or if he can't cause us to get a bad doctrine of the cross, he'll at least tempt us to put that doctrine somewhere in the background. Put the cross over to the side. You come this morning to church with all kinds of other things on your mind. Uh, Maybe there's issues in your marriage, issues in parenting, issues at work, struggles in your own personal life, and you might be thinking, I want something practical, I want something that I can just take with me, put in my pocket, use on the way home. But I just want to ask you to pause. And as we stare at the cross, these foundations that we begin to build begin to become the foundations for the whole of our lives. How we view everything. And how we live. So in one sense, what we're about to talk about, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the most immediately relevant reality in the universe. For those of you who are not Christians, it's the way that you can be reconciled to God and be saved. And for those of us who are Christians, it's the way that we come to know and understand God and walk with Him. It's the pattern for living. It is so much, it'll take us about a month to unpack all that the cross is. And even then, I will have only scratched the surface. It's that glorious. But where does the cross fit in your thinking? Where is it? How central is it into the way that you think of the world? When was the last time you woke up just thankful for the cross of Christ? When was the last time you laid your head to rest on your your pillow thinking, Lord, thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you for your blood. How often have you looked at the picture of Christ on his way to Calvary and said, that's the model for my life. Everything about me ought to be shaped by what that man did on that cross all those years ago. Is it central to you? Is it on your mind? Has it captured your heart? Is it in the foreground? Or is it somewhere off to the side? An important part of Christianity, but maybe not the central part of Christianity. I wonder if parents, raising your kids, if your kids think that Christianity is just a set of rules. Another set of morals for them to follow. They don't have any idea about the cross. I think Paul Tripp's right when he says that in most of our lives as Christians, we live with a gospel gap. A gospel gap, meaning that when we come to know the Lord at the beginning of our Christian lives, we recognize the power of the cross. And at the end of the lives, as we lay on our deathbeds and breathe our last breaths, we will be thankful for the cross. But so many of us are living in the middle of the, after we got saved and before we die, in a kind of gospel-less, Christless, crossless Christianity. Where we've just kind of reverted into doing our best to do all the right things and not the wrong things. And keep all the morals in place. Be good Christians. We're working really hard at that. But the cross? Not really in our thinking anymore. I want to try to grab that cross that might have begun to drift to the side in your own thinking. I just want to, for the next month, grab it and start pulling it back into the center. And for the next month, we're just going to be pulling it to the center. And my hope and prayer is that we would be cross-shaped people, cross-centered 
people. Yes, that we would understand the fullness of the gospel. I'm not excluding any resurrection. Don't hear me saying that. But that the cross in particular, we would see as a pattern of life, a way of thinking as the wisdom of God revealed to the world. It's interesting how specifically the cross is pointed out so often in the New Testament as a pattern for Christian living. We have to come to understand the cross. So this morning we're going to kind of be flying about 30,000 feet in the air and looking at the big picture of the cross. And I'm going to break up our time into four points going like this. We're going to look at the predestined cross. We're going to look at the predicted cross. We're going to look at the preached cross and the praised cross. Four Ps, so you can remember them. Predestined, predicted, preached, and praised. Now ordinarily, as I mentioned earlier, our way of teaching the Bible is just to work through book by book, section by section. Uh, This morning is going to be a little bit different. This is going to be a little bit like a Bible study. This is going to be a little bit like sword drills, if you remember those back in Sunday school. Get your Bible out. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to be wanting to look at that table of contents and try to follow as much as you can. The big uh, numbers at the beginning of sections are chapters. The little ones are the verses. You can follow along where we are in the text. I would love for you to try to follow along, and you can begin by turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're looking at the predestined cross. The predestined cross. When I say the predestined cross, I mean that the cross was predestined by God before the foundation of the world. Okay, That's what I mean. The cross of Jesus Christ was predestined, predetermined, before the world was created. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, we'll start there. We'll put some text here so we can see it in the Scriptures themselves. Verse 17, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. These were Christians that were undergoing many different sufferings. And Peter's writing to encourage them and to strengthen them. They ought to be living in the fear of the Lord even as they're scattered around. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed, that's gospel language. That means bought back, purchased, uh, set free from that which enslaved us. There were old, sinful, futile ways that we walked in, but the blood of Christ set us free. We were set free, it says, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. That's not what bought us back. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. The the blood of the Messiah is that which was paid to set us free from our sin, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now look at verse 20. He, that's Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who bought us, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for the sake of you. That word foreknown, take a look at it, note it, mark it, understand it. The word in Greek is prognosko. It's where we get the idea of prognosis, or the word prognosis, or prognosticate. It's the idea of knowing something beforehand. Many translators, there's different versions of the New Testament. One translation says he was predestined or destined before the foundation of the world. And that certainly is the meaning in the context. 
What Peter is saying is that you were ransomed by the blood of Christ. And then he points out to something, a truth, a fact that will strengthen their faith. What is it? It's that this plan to redeem you, to buy you out from under the slave market of sin was a plan that was conjured up in eternity past, the plan of the Father and the Son working together to redeem a people for His glory. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He's not saying that the Father just knew the Son, like they had a knowing relationship with each other. It's beyond that. It's describing that they knew what they would do to redeem. So prior to their being a creation, the Father and the Son had a plan. And that plan would be that they would create a people for Himself and redeem them through the blood of the Son of God. Before there was a world, before there was any people, before there were any angels, when it was God and only God, perfectly existing in complete contentment, God in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they determined together that the Son would go to a physical world, offer Himself to die on a cross to redeem a people for His glory. Not just a single verse that teaches this either. If you want to turn over to Revelation 13, chapter 8, you can see it there as well. You turn toward the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13 is describing this beast, the first beast making war on the saints, deceiving People deceiving the world, getting people to worship this false God. And in verse 8, it says that all who dwell on the earth will worship it, worship this beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Isn't that a fascinating little statement, isn't it? All who dwell on the earth will worship this false beast when it comes. It will be so persuasive that everyone will think that it is worthy of their praise. There are only some who will not worship it. And those who are not going to worship it, according to John here in Revelation, are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book. Isn't that interesting? So there was a book written before the foundation of the world, it says. Well, what's in the book? Names? Well, names of who? Names of the people that God would redeem, that God would hold fast, that God would not allow to fall into apostasy and worship the false beast. In other words, God in eternity past, the Father and the Son, have a book, have a list of names, have a number of people that they determined before anything was made to redeem unto Himself, buying them to Himself, redeeming them, and then bringing them into relationship with Him that they might share in the wonders and majesty of His glory. That's what's happening in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is happening in Revelation 13. This is what happens in John 17. You don't need to turn there. I'll just basically summarize it. God the Son, Jesus, He's praying. He's about to go to the cross. He'll be arrested in chapter 18. He's praying to His Father, and He's thanking the Father, and He's praying about a group of people that the Father has given to the Son that the Son might go redeem. The same thing I've just been saying reiterated in Revelation and in First Peter. This idea that Father and Son in eternity past had a people that they prepared for the glory of the Father, for the glory of the Son, to magnify the greatness and the majesty of His character. They in eternity past decided a plan of redemption. This is what happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching his first sermon. 
And he's describing what happened to Jesus. Listen to these words. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was already planned in God's mind in eternity past. That when Jesus was dying on the cross, it was, according to the apostolic record, it was something that God had determined would happen in eternity past. It wasn't a cosmic accident. It wasn't, whoops, there goes my Messiah dying on a cross. It was something that the Trinity, before any physical world was made, had already determined to do. Why? For His own glory, to demonstrate the wonders of His grace and mercy, the way He wanted to magnify the riches of His grace, was to devise a plan in which He could enter a world, suffer and die for people who didn't deserve it. Prior to creation. Prior to Adam and Eve. God wanted to display the majesty of His perfections and share those perfections with a people. To do that, He devised a plan. God would create a physical world. God would create physical image bearers. God would create image bearers who could sin, who could rebel, who could die. And then He planned to enter that world by taking on their physical nature. And in doing so, he himself would become cursable, killable. He himself would be able to die. He would taste death. He would recognize that they would sin and that he in his death would take upon himself their sins. He would pay the penalty for them, conquer sin, and then rise from the dead on the third day, and then assemble for Himself all the redeemed, bring them back to the Father, so that the redeemed would glory in the cross. All that planned before let there be light. It was already there in the mind of God. It was already predetermined. Adam and Eve took their first steps in this infant world, and God already knew there would be sin. He already knew there would be failure. He already knew that there would be a curse on the ground because of them and because of their sin. He already knew that He would enter in that world. He already knew that He would enter in to bear that curse. He already knew that He would go to the cross. He planned it all beforehand. It was all predestined. The cross wasn't a backup plan. The cross wasn't, oops, the Messiah failed the rule. i got to figure out something else. i got to swerve now. This is an unexpected development. They're killing my Messiah. What should I do? It wasn't some risk that Jesus took in coming to earth. This was all part of what God was doing for His own glory. Sometimes we think of God as some cosmic scientist. He's got this Petri dish. He's creating people. Oops, here they go. Oh no, they're doing what I didn't expect them to do. I gotta, they're destroying everything. I gotta figure out how to fix them. I gotta enter in and become one of them and do something to turn them around. Otherwise, they're gonna destroy everything. I hope it works. It's not happening. Testimony of Scripture is so crystal clear that the cross was in the mind of God before any one of us ever existed, before any human being ever existed, before the world ever existed. He was creating for the purpose of building a platform on which to show the glories of His cross. That's why the universe exists. The creation is a place to demonstrate the wonder of the cross. Not the cross came afterwards when the universe was spiraling out of control. The point, the point of the universe, the point of this universe, the only universe there is, God's universe, 
is God's glory. God demonstrates the riches of his glory by demonstrating grace. Read Ephesians 1. The riches of grace are seen most sharply where? The cross. This is why, by the way, the cross always persists as being relevant no matter how many people or who opposes it. There are people who hate the cross. There always have been people who hate the cross. Reading about Frederick Nietzsche mocking Christianity for its weakness. He contemptuously called Jesus the God on the cross. He hated it. Sir Alfred Eyer, who was an Oxford philosopher, said that among all the religions of historical importance, Christianity is the worst. Why? He had two main reasons. One of them was the doctrine of vicarious atonement. He hates the cross. And yet, we gather this morning because we love the cross. We tell people about the cross. And the message of the cross is spreading all over the globe. You can't stop it. You know why? Because that's the point of the universe that God made. God won't be stopped in holding up His cross. He will hold up His cross. His church will not fail. It will be spread to all corners of the globe as we sang, let the nations be glad as they hear about a God who would enter His creation, suffer and die to redeem them. The cross is at the center of the universe. This is incredible reality. This is what God created for. It's a platform. Why is there any creation at all? As a platform to show the wonders of His character. Where is that seen? Most sharply at the cross. John Stott says that perceiving the cross to be the center of history, center of theology, Christians naturally perceive it is also to be the center of reality. Yes. Do you believe the cross is the center of reality? Do you believe the cross is the center of your own life that gives meaning and definition to everything you do? Because it's the center of the heart of God as He thought to create. He had in His mind this idea of a cross. Think of what we see at the cross. Think of how the cross reveals God. We see His transcendence and that He came close. Humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross. We see perfect justice. He punishes sin. We see perfect grace. He pardons sinners. We see glory and humility. We see majesty right alongside meekness. We see wrath being poured out on the cross. We see mercy extended towards those who don't deserve it. We see the horrors of human sin as they pound the nails into His hands. And we see the glories of divine grace as He forgives those who did it to Him. God created the universe with the intention of entering it. He created hills for the intention of walking on them. He created trees for the purpose of dying on one. He created iron for the purpose of fastening Himself to a tree. All so that the universe could behold the wonders of His character. The cross is not fundamentally to make us feel better about ourselves. It is to lift our eyes upward and go, what kind of God is this? That He would do this for us. 
for His own glory. He didn't need us. And yet, to magnify the majesty of His name, He devised a plan where now we can share in that glory. It was predestined from before the foundation of the world. Secondly, it was also predictive. The cross was predictive. It was predicted because it was the subject of the writers of the Old Testament from the very beginning. You know your Old Testament. You know that not only was the cross predicted in eternity past, but the the Old Testament is always and continually foreshadowing and describing and creating categories for the cross. Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman is going to crush the serpent, but in crushing the serpent himself will be crushed. Keep reading the Old Testament, you got a Passover lamb. You keep reading further, you got a day of atonement where a lamb is slaughtered for the sins of the people. You go a little further, you're just reading about this entire sacrificial system where the wages of sin is death, where lambs have to be slaughtered continually as an atonement for sin. You get this idea of substitute by death. Substitute by death, constantly coming up again and again, entirely through the Old Testament. You get to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant himself is going to be wounded that we might be healed. He's going to be bruised so that we might be set free. We've been looking at that one for a while. We get to Zechariah 9, we see that the shepherd himself is going to be stricken. In other words, not only in eternity past has the cross been on the heart of God, but all throughout human history, the cross has been the great shadow under which all history is being played out. The history of Israel is predicting the cross, preparing us for the cross, preparing humanity to understand the cross. Now turn over to, to Luke 24 real quick. Jesus makes this point really clear. At this point, he's just already resurrected. He's on the road to Emmaus, if you look at verse 13. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 13. There's two men headed to Emmaus. Jesus draws near to them. They don't know it's him. This is Jesus after the resurrection. They have no idea who he is, but they're all downcast. They're all sad because they had thought that Jesus was the one. Verse 21 says that we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they were discouraged. And then look at verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had, they had seen a vision of angels. He was alive. They're, they're hearing that he might be alive. What's going on? Skip down to verse 25. This man, who is Jesus, that they're talking to, they don't know it, it's Jesus, kind of veiled himself so they don't recognize him. Verse 25 says, He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You didn't believe all that the prophets of the Old Testament were saying. You're slow to believe all that. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Suffer these things and enter into glory? In other words, if you would have understood your Old Testament, you would have known that he was going to die. You would have anticipated the Messiah's death. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Moses, that's Genesis, and onward, and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is the Bible study I want to be at. I want to sit there and listen to Jesus explain the Old Testament like that. That would be an incredible study. He's telling them, listen, it was all about me. It was all about my sufferings and my resurrection and my glory. That's what the whole Old Testament was doing. Skip over to verse 45. He kind of starts to reveal himself and get a little more specific. He says, verse 45, 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. In other words, it has been written that the Christ should suffer. The Old Testament was always pointing to a suffering Messiah. And if you didn't see it, you didn't read it right. That was the point. The whole Old Testament is predicting the coming of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah. Now we've been in Mark. Turn over to Mark chapter 14. I just found this fascinating. Jesus shows up. We're, 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 we've seen in the, in the Gospel of Mark how frequently Jesus talks about his own death. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.9, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.34, 12.8. He's talking about his death. He knows his death is coming. He has certainty he's about to die. He even has very specific ways in which he will die. And then in 14, he's describing a little, a little more detail of how he's going to die. Look at verse 21. Mark 14, verse 21. He says, for the Son of Man... He's describing Judas who will betray him. For the Son of Man, that's himself, goes as it is, what? Written of him. What's going to happen to me was written down already. What's going to happen to me, this betrayal and arrest and death has already been written down. Look ahead to verse 27. Look ahead to verse 27. He quotes from Zechariah. He says, and Jesus said to them, quote, you will all fall away for it is what? It's written down. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He understood himself to be the shepherd who is stricken by God. Turn over, go over to verse 49. He's now being arrested in the middle of the night by the Jewish leaders. Verse 49, day after day, he says, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. The death of Christ, Jesus says in Luke 24, it was all predicted. And then Jesus is explaining, my death has been written down. It has been something anticipated for thousands of years. This is nothing new. In other words, God has determined in eternity past to put the cross at the center of the universe in all of the Old Testament is building up so that we might understand the cross. Think of the writers of the Old Testament like carpenters. Constructing a stage, building it up nice and tall, so that when Jesus comes and when he dies on that cross, they can lift up that cross, put it front and center, so that everyone will understand exactly what this means. We don't have categories for the cross if there's no Old Testament. Eternity past, the cross is in the mind of God. As God begins to unveil human history and define it and interpret it in the Old Testament, He is showing us that all of this is leading to one point of reality, and it is that God Himself will enter the creation, suffer and die for sinners to retrieve for Himself a people for His own glory. I'll turn to 1 Corinthians as we think about what about the New Testament. This will be our third point. We'll see the preached cross. 1 Corinthians, the preached cross, right after Romans, cross in the heart of God before the foundation of the world, the Old Testament is building the platform to help us understand the cross, Jesus shows up, most of the gospel accounts are about his journey to the cross, the majority of the events of the four gospels are about the last week of Jesus' life as he goes to the cross. 
And now we're in 1 Corinthians 1, and the Apostle Paul is describing the heart of his own ministry. Verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, you say that's not specifically about the cross. He's preaching the gospel. But look at it, what he goes on to say. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, I'm going to preach the gospel. And kind of as in a parallel statement, he defines the gospel as the message of the cross. It is the message of what the Messiah did on the cross. That's what the heart of the Christian message is. That's what the heart of Paul's message is. He understands that if he tries to layer the gospel, tries to layer the message of the cross with human wisdom, all he will be doing is dimming the power and dimming the glory of the cross. Look ahead at verse 23. Chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. We are preaching about a Messiah who died who suffered a scandal on a tree outside Jerusalem. We are preaching about a cursed Messiah. These two words together, Christ crucified, are like an oxymoron. How could they possibly go together? Especially Jews would not have been able to fathom what this meant. Crucified Messiah? But that was the message of Paul. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you Proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except one thing. I, I am going to know nothing. I'm going to uh, not speak to anything. I'm not going to speak to the, the politics of your day. I'm not going to speak to all the issues of your day. I have one message I want you to hear. And it is this. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because you cannot understand God without a crucified Messiah. And you cannot understand Jesus apart from Jesus on the cross. There is no Christianity apart from the cross of Christ that should not be off to the side. It was the center of the Christian message that Paul preached. Go to 2 Corinthians. I want to make this, put an even sharper point on this. You turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and if you're looking in verse 20, Paul is again describing his, his ministry as an apostle, the apostles preaching, how they viewed themselves, what they were doing, what their message was. In chapter 5, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, we, the apostles, are ambassadors for Christ. We're going to come representing Jesus with his message. That's what an ambassador does. And then he says this amazing statement, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Think of that one. God making his appeal, God preaching through us. God has a message for the world. He uses apostles, he uses preachers to speak that message. That word appeal is an interesting word. It's an urgent word. It it's, uh, can be described as an encouragement, an invitation, a summons. It's as if God is summoning the world to Himself through the apostles and their teaching. Then He goes on, God making appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
Now look at verse 21. What's the, the content of the message that the apostles bring? It is this, verse 21. For our sake, for our sake, He, that's God the Father, made Him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. God the Father made His own Son to be sin. Put our sins on Him. Gave our burdens of sin and placed them on that cross even though He knew no sin. Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great transfer in the Bible. What's the message of the apostles? What is the ambassador's message as they speak on behalf of God? As they speak on behalf of God to the world and they summon to the world. They invite the world. What is the message? It's the message that God has entered the world in His Son Jesus Christ to be the sin bearer. And as the sin bearer, He suffers for those sins and rises from the dead so that all who look to Him will be given the righteousness of Christ and their sins will be paid for in full on that cross. It's incredible. This is the message that God has for the world. And of course it should be. If it was in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world, if it was the whole point of the Old Testament Scriptures, as soon as Jesus comes, lives, dies, resurrects, empowers the people of God with His Holy Spirit, the message they are to bring is the message of a God who entered the world to go to a cross to suffer and die for sinners. It's at the heart of the message. The very center of the Gospel. That's the message of the cross the message that the church now has. It's the message that you and I have, isn't it? As we seek to be faithful representatives of God and ambassadors for Him, individually in our workplaces, in our relationships, and as a church, our message is a message about the cross, about a God whose love is so great He would enter into His own creation, suffer and die on behalf of sins of people who did not deserve any grace at all. That's the kind of God that exists. The kind of God that we worship. And that's the message that we have to bring to the world. Like one author put it this way, the church has no right to act like a community bulletin board down at the local grocery store. You've seen those, right? Covered with business cards, ads for apartments to rent, notices about lost pets and other agendas that compete for people's attention. A church exists to be a pillar that holds up the truth of Jesus so obviously that everyone can see it. Particularly the truth of what Jesus did on that cross. This is, this is amazing to me. God is making His appeal right now. Through His ambassadors. He is summoning the world. He is crying out to all who would listen. In the summons to the world... He says, look at my cross. Do you want to know what kind of God exists in this universe? Look at the cross. You want to know how sins can be forgiven? Look at the cross. You want to know how you can be reconciled to me? Look at the cross. What kind of God exists? There is no other God except the God of the cross. The God of Allah, that God, doesn't exist. That is not the true God. That God didn't enter humanity to suffer and die on behalf of the sinners He would save. There is no true, accurate knowledge of God apart from understanding the work of Christ on the cross. That's the true God. 
That's how you come to know Him and love Him and see His love poured out for us. I bring up Allah just because I was reading about a Muslim man who was brought up reading the Quran, saying his prayers to Allah, trying his best to please Allah when a Christian gave him a Bible. And as he began to read the Bible, he encountered this one called Jesus. And the things that Jesus did were so remarkable to him, but what was most stunning was Jesus on His way to the cross. What? The God who made everything? Who is healing? Who walks on water? Who feeds the crowds? This this God incarnate is now walking that road to Calvary? Letting Himself be scourged? Letting himself be nailed? There was only one word this Muslim man could use to describe Jesus as he read about the cross. The word was irresistible. He said, for me, the offer was irresistible and heaven sent. The first time he saw God as a loving father. That God was kind and merciful. That he was willing to forgive sins. That he was willing to suffer the penalty that your sins deserved. That He was willing to grant assurance that you might know that He loves you. That you might have confidence to come to Him. He began to realize that God is not a God who wants you always guessing whether you're loved or not. You're not sure of what will happen to you when you die. While God actually wants us to know, we know He wants us to know, because look at the cross. Could you see any more clear expression of the love of God than the cross? He went on to say, the burden of my past life was lifted. I felt as if a huge weight had gone. With the relief and sense of lightness came an incredible joy. At last, it had happened. I was free of my past. I knew that God had forgiven me. I felt clean. I wanted to shout. I wanted to tell everybody, friends, that's what the cross does. It reveals God in a way that no other religion that is attempting to explain God can. Every religion is telling you something about God, but no religion has the cross. That's the truth about who God is. That's the message that we preach. It's the message that melts the heart. It's the message that draws us in as we meditate on the wonder of divine mercy. I wonder how many of you Christians remember your first encounter with the cross. I can remember moments in my past being filled with shame. Having committed things I knew were sinful. And wondering if God could ever love me. And I remember a friend looking me in the eye and telling me about the cross. He suffered there. Because He loved us. Because He came for us. He would lay His life down for us. And at the cross, all the sins I was so ashamed of and all the guilt I carried around and all the questions I had about whether God could actually love me, it was all settled. Look at the cross. Would a God do that who didn't love? Is that something a God who hates would do? That's the message of the love of God. 
message that reveals the heart of God. What the cross did for me. Do you wonder whether God loves you? I would just invite you to stare at the cross. Sit there. Look at it. Read Mark 15 three times this week. And every time just ask yourself, what's happening here? What does this mean? Go read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Go look at 1 Peter 2. Just unpack the glories of the cross. Read Romans 5. Whoa! That's what God is like? Yes. He is the God who came to show His glory, to show His love, to show His mercy in the most magnificent way by taking on human nature and dying on the cross. That's not the end. That's the preached cross. You have the predestined cross that was in the heart of God in eternity past. It's the predicted cross. It's the whole point of the Old Testament Scriptures and everything is pointing to it. It's the preached cross. It's the message of the New Testament. It's the message of every faithful church. It's the message of every faithful preacher. It's the message of every faithful evangelist. It's the message of the cross. But I want to now look at the praised cross. Turn now to Revelation chapter 5. sometimes sing that song here on Sunday mornings, Is He Worthy? A little bit of a question and answer kind of format in that song, Is He Worthy? Is anyone worthy? Open the scroll. It's kind of language that if you're not familiar with the Bible, you wouldn't understand. What does it mean to open the scroll? Well, it comes straight from Revelation chapter 5. The scroll is representing this title deed to the earth, the right to rule, the right to judge. That's what the scroll is representing. And there's these angelic creatures who are basically weeping because no one has the authority in heaven and on earth to open the scroll. No one has that kind of authority in heaven and on earth. And then in verse 5, it says that one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that is Jesus, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Everyone begins to fall down in worship. And I just want to skip ahead to verse 9. As they begin to worship in heaven, these angelic creatures, this is verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is Jesus worthy? What is it about Jesus? There is no one else in all creation who is able to take the scroll. There is no one worthy, not you, not me, not any human being, not any angel, has the right to open up the scroll to the universe, operate as its king and judge. No one has that right except one, Jesus Christ. But why Jesus? Look at the language. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for or because you were slain. That's the reason why He's worthy. Because you were slain and what He did in His cross, by your blood, you ransomed people for God. You bought them out of the slave market of sin, redeemed them, cleansed them, brought them to yourself, brought them up to God, made them His own so that they will share in the glory of the character of God. 
You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Skip down to verse 12. This is now describing the myriads of myriads. Thousands upon thousands. As far up into the heavens as you can look, there are these angelic creatures. They all begin shouting with a loud voice. Must have sounded like the roar of waterfalls. And they all are saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All the angelic hosts worshiping Jesus because He died and rose. And because of His death, saved a people for the glory of God. I think about this. These are angels rejoicing. Angels never sinned. Not these ones. Angels were never in need of mercy. Angels were never in need of grace. An angel can't sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, like you and I can. We've tasted grace. Angel didn't need to be redeemed. They were never fallen. So an angel, in a sense, is kind of a spectator to what God has been doing on planet earth with these fallen humanities. And the angels are watching. We know from Job that the angels were there when God created all things. We know that the angels were observing that they're ministering spirits set up by God, so they're all over the earth. We know that they were there at the birth of Christ. Remember, they're singing in the heavens at the birth of Christ. We talk about that during Christmas time. But what is the subject of their heavenly praises in eternity. The angels are stunned that the eternal God that they've always known has not only come to live, they're not worshiping because He fed the masses. They're not worshiping Him because He did miracles. They're not even worshiping Him for the wonder of the Incarnation, as great as that is, or because He cast out demons, as incredible as that was. They're worshiping Him because He is the Lamb who was slain. It's the theme of the angelic chorus. The angels are in awe and wonder that God would do that. I mean, I'm sure some of the angels are sitting back and thinking, you know, Lord, these guys could have just, you know, it would have been right and just for you to just punish them and send them to hell. They stand and go, what kind of God has created us that we worship? He is the God who has come, whose love is so great that He came to the cross to die. Not just angels who rejoice. Turn over to chapter 7 of Revelation. Verse 9. He's seeing these people redeemed out of the tribulation. It says in chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. And they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And all the angels are standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. They're worshiping Him. They're in awe of Him. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? 
of John, caught up in the vision, going, I don't know. Says to them, Sir, you know. Said to them, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They've been redeemed by the cross of Christ. These are the ones who've been cleansed and purified by the death of Jesus on that cross. These are the people whose sins were transferred to the cross, paid for at the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on that cross. And these people now have no wrath against them as they enjoy perfect fellowship now with their heavenly Father. Look at verse 15. And there they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. The Lamb in their midst of their throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What love! He came to die, shed His blood, to redeem a people for Himself. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be there as the innumerable redeemed are singing the praises of the Lamb who was slain. I can't wait. I can't wait for that event that is going to be an event coming soon where we are with Him and we see Him and we shout among all the redeemed, glory to the Lamb who is slain. And we'll look around and we'll see that there are brothers and sisters that were from all over the globe, the Africans and Asians and those in, from North America and from Europe and from South America, from every corner of the globe. And we'll see some who were rich in this life and many who were poor in this life and those who were known in this life and those who no one knew. And all of us equally together stunned that the God who made us redeemed us. That He bought us. That He loves us. And that for all eternity He will be our shepherd. We, church, we will never stop glorifying the cross. We will be in wonder of the cross for all eternity. We will say, wow! And isn't that the purpose of the cross? Wasn't that God's plan? Church, is the cross your great passion? It's the passion of God. Is the cross your glory? Is the cross your wisdom? Is the cross your boast? It was Paul's boast. Far be it from you to boast in anything except the cross, my Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing I'm ever going to boast in. Friends, church, the universe is not about you. It's not about me. The goal of redemption isn't about us. The goal of the cross even isn't us. The goal of the universe, the goal of redemption, the goal of the cross is ultimately this, that God's glory would be put on display. And that the entire universe would watch and say, whoa, what kind of God exists? What kind of God would do this? That every creature would bow before Him, stunned at the character of the one true God. The universe is a canvas. God is using to paint His glory. The center of that canvas is the bright and glorious 
riveting picture of the cross of Christ. That's where our gaze should always be. If all of eternity past was looking forward to the cross, and all of eternity future will be looking back to the cross, doesn't it make sense that our lives should be consumed by the cross? If you're not a believer, this is the way God made the world. The good news is that because of what Jesus did on the cross, because this is the whole point that He would receive glory for what He's done there, you can come freely in faith and in repentance and know all your sins are forgiven, paid for on the cross, and that God welcomes you with open arms to receive you as His child. Come, Jesus Christ. Come to the Father through Him. And let's glory together in the cross. Forgive us again, Lord, for the ways the cross has been a peripheral subject. And we ask that You would use this time in Your Word. Put it back front and center. Help us to see it for what it is. Help us to glory in it. Boast in it. Worship because of it. And recognize that You did not stay on it. On that cross, you rose from the dead. You're alive right now. And as the risen Lamb, you deserve worship and glory and honor and praise because you are the Lamb who was slain for us. Thank you. We are humbled. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.